Hey guys, happy Friday. It's your Murder Girls here and we're back with a brand new episode. This is Raina. And I'm Marie. And we hope that you guys had a great Thanksgiving. We had a pretty low-key chill turkey day. Now it's almost Christmas and then 2021. <laughs> but honestly, I think we can all agree that we're ready to get the hell out of 2020. The way that you just said it and all of that blended together was exactly what 2020 felt uh, like. No separation. Every good. day is like a Wednesday. This year has been interesting to say the least. Exactly. So if you guys have any cases you would like us to cover, please hit us up at our website or you can message us on social media. We have an email address, murder at those murdergirlspodcast.com that you can also hit us up at. We've had a few contacts lately of some super interesting stories that we're working on that we're excited to share with you guys. Yeah, so head over to the website, hit that case submission button, or you guys can just email or direct message us on social media. We'll get back to you. And don't forget to rate and review us, please. We love those five stars. Helps us move up those charts. And as always, Raina and I really appreciate your guys' support each week. So today's case is something out of a Hollywood movie. It involves greed, family ties, and murder. All of our favorite things. Hell yeah. (laughs) Makes for a good story. So we're taking you guys back to July 2011 in St. John, New Brunswick, Canada. When a prominent businessman with a net worth of over $37 million is found bludgeoned to death in his office at the age of 69. Richard Olin was born in 1941 in Rothsay, Canada. I feel like we've been kicking it like a lot up north lately we've been doing a whole lot of crime north of the border eh oh my god don't ever say that again (laughs) so richard was born into the olin family whom owns moosehead beer company it's a huge brewing company in canada and this family is worth mucho money moosehead brewing is canada's oldest and largest independent brewing company and it's located in saint john new brunswick canada It was founded in 1867 and has maintained being privately owned by the Olin family. It is now currently in the sixth generation of its family ownership. So Richard was the second son born to chairman and CEO of Moosehead Brewing Company. His name was Philip Olin and his wife, Mary. Richard and his older brother, Derek, attended a prestigious Rothschild school and then went on to college at the Regiopolis College and the University of New Brunswick. So even though these boys were born into what people called old family money in Canada, these boys were smart and they wanted to pursue a higher education. So the Olins had some of the highest incomes per capita in Canada history, and they mingled with the best of the best, the who's who for sure. I mean, celebrities, prominent figures. They were just a very well, high-respected family. They would hang out with the likes of the Crosby family, and they're known for the huge molasses dynasty in Canada. And they would also hang out with the Irvings, and they were known for the Irving Oil Company. And it was founded by K.C. Irving back in 1882. And the company had a net worth of over $12 billion. billion That's old money. Yes. These are some high rollers. So Richard, following in his father's footsteps, would go on to obtain a degree in brewing technology. He, I'm sure, wanted to appease his father and take over the family business one day. So Richard would go on to marry his wife, Connie Connell, in 1985, and they had three children. The oldest was Elizabeth, the middle was Jacqueline, and the youngest was his son, Dennis. 
The Olin family was thriving, and Richard was appointed by his father to become the vice president of Moosehead Brewing Company in 1980. So now he's practically running this empire that his family has created. So as Philip, the father, got older, of course, he needed to appoint someone to take over the legacy of the brewery. But with two sons, only one could be chosen. Well, Richard and Derek knew that only one son could be appointed and only one son could take over this legacy. And let me tell you from the research that I did, these brothers fought like hell. It was like an all out public legal feud fighting over who would take control of Moosehead Brewing Company. Who would take the reins from their father? All while the father is still alive. Right? Please. <laughs> so Richard wanted full leadership of the company, and Derek wasn't having any part of it. Well, eventually, in 1981, Philip, the father, made his decision, and he chose Derek, who was two years senior to Richard, to take over the company. And not long after that, Richard decided to leave Moosehead Brewing Company. And I'm sure there was some severe bitterment and resentment towards his brother. Can you imagine all that tension? Yeah. Probably the best thing for him to leave. Yeah. Things weren't things weren't looking pretty nice between them. Mm-hmm. So after leaving the family business in the early 80s, Richard went on to do super well for himself. He would start from the bottom up, building everything up from scratch. Richard built a booming business and provided super well for his wife and his children. The businesses he operated were Kinghurst Estates Limited, an investment firm named Far End Corporation, and the Brooksville Transportation Limited Company. So between all of these successful companies, Richard had accumulated a net worth of over $37 million. Richard and his family were super well known in the community, and Richard himself had won a ton of awards that the community had given out. He was enlisted to be in charge of the 1985 Summer Olympic Games in Canada. Like, this guy was way up there. So things are looking, like, super good for the Olin family. Richard settled into this nice, super comfortable office at 25 Canterbury Street, located in the historic town of St. John, Canada. Richard Oland was a hard-pressed businessman. He was not afraid to speak his mind. He was referred to and known as a super argumentative man. He would argue with anybody about anything. It could be the smallest or the largest issue, and Richard had something to say. Well, Richard should have probably kept his mouth shut because (laughs) he was holding a not-so-secret secret. He had been having an affair with a lady named Diana Sidilak. She was a local realtor in the area who was also married herself. So super crappy because Richard had been married to his wife, Connie, for like 45 years. All the while, he had a side piece and him and Diane had been having an affair for like eight years. And him and Diane would meet up pretty often during the week at that upper Canterbury office. They even traveled together. I guess the Olin family had known about this affair and obviously were not happy with what was going on. Connie, Richard's wife, had heard of the affair through a rumor, but she never publicly spoke on it. So it's July 6th and Richard and his mistress are planning this trip to Portland, Maine sometime around July 14th, 2011. They'd been texting each other all throughout the day on the 6th trying to settle on the date to depart. The back and forth texting abruptly ends with Diane waiting for a response from Richard. 
The afternoon goes by and turns into evening. And when she can't reach him for this evening phone call that they had every night, she becomes super concerned. Diane starts texting Richard that evening over and over and over, and he's not answering, which is totally out of Richard's character. So she places one last call to Richard at 6.44 p.m. And at that time, and at that time, his phone is turned off and it goes straight to voicemail. Now she's irritated. I mean, God forbid she has it in her mind that he's actually spending time with his wife. <laughs> but that's not here nor there. So she starts sending him texts and her anger and irritation is like totally coming out through the text to which he's not responding to. Her mood totally had changed from like the loving messages that they were sending earlier in the day about their trip. Girl, you are a mistress. That's what I mean. Know what your if he, place. What if he's spending time with his <laughs> wife? What if he's not dead? Oh my gosh. So the next morning, she heads over to Canterbury Street after her hair appointment to swing by Richard's office. So she approaches the office and what she sees is a ton of police swarming CSI and Richard's car being towed away. Richard Olin, 69 years old, the prominent businessman and heir to the Moosehead Brewing family, was found by his secretary on July 7th, bludgeoned to death in his office. He had suffered 45 blows to his body, his neck, his hands, and his head. And this was according to the autopsy that was performed. So the wounds on his hands, they were listed as self-defense wounds from his attacker. He suffered wounds to his eye sockets. Oy. And the pathologist said that his sockets were like cracked egg shells. That's scary. Ugh. There were portions of brain matter all the way down his back. I mean, it was just, it was gruesome. The most gruesome. Exactly. One of the detectives, he actually said that it was one of the bloodiest crime scenes of his career with the most blows that he had seen to a victim. Oh my gosh. And you guys can check out some photos that we uploaded on social media and it shows this horrific Ugh. scene. Yeah. So Nobody. Just... Use your discretion advice. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to check it out. So his skull had suffered catastrophic damage with six fractures and they had breached the outer table of his skull. So in other words, his skull was like completely broken. There was blood located on every inch of his office. It was everywhere. The walls. I mean, his desk, his office supplies, his computer. Like, there was just blood everywhere. This was a murder of passion. And there was no doubt in their minds that whoever did it. It was intentional. It was intentional. So, the physician was that was hired in Richard's death, he said that Richard was alive during his attack. And that he felt and was comprehensive during the whole thing. And that he likely was still alive after his attacker had left for literally about five to ten minutes. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Just kill me now. Don't kill me, but I'm Don't just be, saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after his autopsy, they concluded that he had been murdered with a weapon that either had two sides, like an axe or a hammer. But no weapons were found and no weapons were left behind at the crime scene. So Richard's wife, Connie, she was informed about her husband, Richard's brutal murder by none other than guess who his mistress. Are you serious? OK, so you. Yes, girl. <laughs> you put this script together. I only read my part, so I didn't know <laughs> yes. that. Dang, Diana. She, that's how she finds up. out, right? 
So when she arrived at his office, Diana, she, you know, seeing all the police presence and couldn't find Richard by phone, she called Connie to ask what happened. So then Connie called an associate of Richard's that worked in the same building, and he was the one that told her. Yeah. That, like, confirmed. Your husband's been, right? Yeah, your husband's been brutally murdered. So news of Richard's murder began to spread like wildfire, and his family was all brought down to the police station that same day for some initial questioning. And the hunt is on. Who would want Richard dead? Obviously, none of his family. Well, you wouldn't think the immediate family because he's a total breadwinner. But anyways, <laughs> so let alone who's going to want to bludgeon him 45 times to death? Is it over greed? Is it over jealousy? There's so many narratives that the police had to sort through in this case. Richard was worth millions and he was having that long time affair. So did Diana hack him to death? Who she knows? wanted a piece of the pie. Right? He was known to lend money and hand out money to family members. His son, Dennis, had recently gone through this super pricey divorce and Richard totally stepped up and like, paid for it there was a will in place there was property there were so many businesses which led to so many motives so was this killing like for financial gain from one of richard's like own family members which is like the question that i have or had until i got to the end because i know how it ends (laughs) but i was like dude who killed him So maybe it could have been like the mistress's husband because obviously floozy Diana was married. The police just didn't know where to start. Right. Where do you start with all of these options and all these potential killers? Who do you start with? Right. So the Olin family is obviously trying to grieve Richard's death, but they're brought in for questioning. The usual questions that were being asked, like, where were you today? Do you know somebody who would want to hurt your father or your husband? All of that, like, normal stuff. But this is where police kind of gain a better insight on Richard and the fact that he actually may have had more enemies in the business world than anybody would have thought. So Connie, his wife, had explained that she hadn't seen Richard since the night before when he was called into his office by an associate and that he didn't return home that evening, but she didn't think too much of it because that wasn't really out of the ordinary for Richard. He commonly was known to not come home at night. I'm assuming that Diana, the mistress, had something to do with it. I'm pretty sure she did. (laughs) So Richard's daughters were interviewed and shortly were released to go home from the station. Dennis, the only son of Richard, and Connie were able to provide a lengthy interview to police and some insight on his and his father's relationship. It was known that they were not close. So Dennis was at the station for like five hours detailing out to detectives how he always felt that he was never meeting his father's expectations of him. And how he remembers certain key events in his family's life where his father would publicly put him down and berate him. And he was just going on and on and on about these stories between him and his father. He said that his father was mentally and verbally abusive towards him, which obviously took a toll. I mean, this guy will not stop spewing. He's like, let me just come forward with everything. Can you just confess, please? Uh, so, I mean, naturally, I think that this piqued the detective's interest in Dennis, along with the fact that Dennis was actually the last person to see his father, Richard, alive. And 
it comes to light that Dennis is in dire financial problems, which he totally just came straight out with that too to the detectives. Like, oh my gosh. Dennis is giving it all up. So Dennis Olin told the detectives that he was struggling to meet his commitments and his commitments included $4,300 per month for child and spousal support from his divorce. And he had to pay $1,650 to his father every month. And this was for a loan that he was given $500,000 a couple years earlier. His father gave him the $500,000 after Dennis's first divorce in order to save a family estate that he was living in, and it was helping pay for legal fees in his divorce and things. Well, investigators found out that his monthly interest payment to his father had bounced just a few days before the brutal murder. Dennis had a 163000 line of credit that was maxed out, over twenty-seven grand in credit cards that were maxed out as well. He was overspending about fourteen grand monthly, and this was all just shortly before his father's shocking death. But despite being deeply in debt, Olin spent more than twenty grand taking. Where is he three... getting all this money from? If he I... doesn't have money, right? I have no it's idea. It's not like you're like going to Macy's and spending three hundred dollars. No. <laughs> so he spent twenty grand to take three trips between November two thousand ten and April two thousand eleven. He did 23 days in Hungary and Italy, 18 days in England, 12 days in Florida. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. I know. So financial records also showed that he would frequently ask his father for large cash advances. And his father's probably like, no, um, dude, I see a motive here. Right. So Dennis gave his accounts of the day prior, stating that he had visited his father's office three separate times within the same day. But this was to go over a family project that they had been working on together. His last trip to his dad's office was somewhere between 5.35 and 6.36 p.m. Now, he's seen on surveillance footage leaving his father's office with a grocery bag in his hand. He exited down the stairs from the office and went west on foot. Dennis also gave conflicting information about what he was wearing the day that his father was murdered. He said the jacket that he was supposedly wearing didn't match the jacket that was caught on surveillance footage. And then when he realized that he had given the false information, he like tried to correct himself somehow. So the jacket that he was wearing, he had conveniently dropped off to get dry cleaned on the exact day of July 7th when his father was murdered. Richard's iPhone had also pinged near a wharf, which was near Dennis's home the evening he was killed. And there were multiple eyewitnesses that placed Dennis at that exact wharf. So Dennis was also having problems recalling like the entire route he took that day as he came and left. So he stated that he didn't remember where he went after he left his dad's office like that last time. He just doesn't remember when it was literally like the night before. Oh my gosh. I remember what I did last night. I don't know. I mean, unless you have like the worst memory ever. Yeah. So this was enough for them to focus in on him and the cops start to get some warrants for Dennis's property. Time to lawyer up. But how are you going to pay for him? Daddy's dead now. Police do a super thorough search of Dennis's property, including his home and his car, and they swabbed over 10 different areas of his car that they had sent out to be tested. So in the meantime, they're searching his clothes, his shoes, every article of clothing that he was wearing that day, and they take all of that in. They also include his phone and his keys because they are not going to risk any chance of missing any trace evidence. But 
When everything comes back, they do not find any blood or DNA anywhere. Not in the car, not in his shoes, not in his phone. Like, they couldn't find anything to link Richard's DNA to any of Dennis's belongings. They even swabbed that grocery bag that Dennis was seen carrying on surveillance tape from his father's office that evening. The only break that the investigators got is when they sent the brown jacket that Dennis was seen wearing on surveillance. Oh, the one that he forgot that he was wearing and then (laughs) conveniently sent it to be dry cleaned. Yeah. So on that one, the one that he wasn't wearing, or wait, was he wearing? Or Or where is it? (laughs) So on that jacket, they found four spots of blood. So they shipped that jacket off to the lab to be tested in Nova Scotia. And that comes back positive as his father Richard's DNA. There are two small spots on the right sleeve and one small spot on the chest and another at the bottom center of the jacket. But like this crime scene was brutal. There would have been blood everywhere. Like on him. On him. That's what I don't understand. It couldn't have avoided him. Right. So they don't find any blood anywhere. I'm honestly really torn yeah, well, I mean, well, I think you, we should finish the story, though. What are you, Dexter? Like, you just cleaned it all up and left? Like, that's what I understand. I just feel like there was, has to be way more blood on yeah. him. Four spots, that's not going to cut it. All in all, at the time, it was not enough to arrest Dennis for his father's murder. And this high-profile case, it goes cold. And it goes cold for almost two years. The cops had no suspects. The media was in a frenzy. Like, how could this have happened and two years have gone by and no one's been held responsible for the murder? Cops had mass amounts of pressure to solve this murder, and they had no leads, except for one. So Dennis went on about his life, just like the rest of the Olins. They had a very public, high-profile funeral for the late Mr. Olin at Our Lady of Perpetual Help Church, and they laid him there to rest. Richard did have a will in place, though oddly, two days before his murder, he had made a to-do list in his office, and changing his will was on that list. Oh, that's a little suspect. (laughs) Right? Because if Dennis is always visiting him at the office, and it's Uh not abnormal for him to be coming in two, three times a day, like you're kind of going to know like what's on your dad's agenda and what's not. And that day he was supposed to change the will. Yeah. Well, and he's already prior pretty much like draining his bank account to pay mm-hmm. his son's way. I also read oh, an article dude, when I was doing the investigating that one of the lawyers for Richard Olin had mentioned that he was really like bent on changing his will. Like he wanted to get this. This was something that he wanted to get done. And now he's dead. Oh my God. So, after two long, grueling years, in November of 2013, the cops arrest Dennis and they charge him with second-degree murder of his father, Richard. Police felt very strongly about this arrest and that there was no other suspects. It was Dennis. So, Dennis pleads not guilty and he was actually soon released on a bond of $50,000 and that was paid for by his uncle, Derek. Remember, Richard's brother. Oh, my gosh. So Dennis's family like totally rallied around him. They were like, there's no way that he would ever be capable of murdering his own father. And they vowed to support him through the entire trial. So in September of 2015, Dennis's trial begins for the murder of his own father, Richard. The prosecution stated that it was a financial motive to murder his dad and that due to his overwhelming debts, Executing his father would not only relieve the financial debt, but also he would have access to his inheritance. 
I never feel super one-sided. Well, I can't say I never feel super one-sided. But in this case. I feel <laughs> super one-sided on this case. Like, Dennis, you a dick. So the trial is super highly publicized in Canada, and it leads to speculation about if Dennis would even be able to get a fair trial. After 65 days in court, which is the longest trial in this Providence's history, Dennis Oland is convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no parole for at least 10 years. The Olin family is totally beside beside themselves at this verdict. The legal team would go on to work, and just shy of a year into Dennis's sentence, the legal team would file an appeal for a new trial in 2016. The appeal ordered a new trial for the case due to an error in the instructions that were given to the jury by the judge. Well, we are here to tell you guys that Dennis was found not freaking guilty in his second trial. I object. (laughs) Yeah. Is it too late to go in there screaming? Yeah. So the trial at the trial, the judge rules that there were just too many missing pieces to this puzzle to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Dennis killed his father. No weapon had ever been found. Richard's phone that pinged off of the cell tower near Dennis's house was never found either. So between the missing evidence and the lack of DNA linking Dennis to his father's murder, Dennis is totally cleared of all the charges and is set free. So he's out currently adjusting to being a free man once again he is actually being sued by his ex-wife for domestic violence and he's also trying to sell off that family home which is the same home that his father had loaned him half a million dollars so he could try to keep so we want to know if dennis didn't kill his father who did actually i don't want to know that i think dennis killed his father and that is the million dollar question (laughs) who do you do you think he killed his father i think dennis did it because if the camera's catching him coming in and out all day why didn't it catch anybody else coming in and out all day unless there's multiple entrances but they didn't talk about that he could have hidden the weapon in the grocery bag as well but then how did he not come out covered in blood that's uh, another that, thing. That's the question right there's there. So many he's not questions. Dexter, but I mean. Maybe he is. We don't know. Who knows? Maybe <laughs> there's a Dexter in Canada. Right. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. Please hop on social media. We have so many questions. Yes. Let us know. What do you think happened? Seriously. Who did it? You guys can find us on social media on any platform at Those Murder Girls Podcast. You're going to want to make sure that you're following us because we actually have some new bloody birthdays coming up for you guys. And remember, those are only exclusive to our social media. Thank you guys for joining us this week and downloading this episode. And thank you guys for messaging us with all of your support. We're so glad you love what we're doing here. We hope you all have a safe weekend and we will meet you back here next Friday for a brand new episode. Bye Bye, guys.